Hi, this is Dave Denton of Dave's Voice Works and Radio Guy Reflections and TurnbuckleTrash.net. Two great podcasts, one about professional wrestling and one about radio. And it's all on Anchor. Now, if you haven't heard about Anchor, here's a great way to make a podcast. Use Anchor. It's the easiest way to make a podcast because, hey, it's free. And they give all the creation tools that allow you to record and edit any podcast you'd like to do right from your computer. Use Anchor. Anchor, the best way to podcast and the best way to listen to Turnbuckle Trash or Radio Guy Reflections. This is Radio Guy Reflections. 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 Open your ears real wide and say, Give it to me straight, doctor. I can take it. Here is a complete disc jockey show with all the modern pace of today's exciting radio. So, you guys hear anything good on the radio lately? On November the 2nd, 1920, the first radio station, KDKA of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, signed on the air. Over the years, radio has changed from radio dramas and live performances to the age of the disc jockey. From the man many believe popularized the term rock and roll, Alan Freed, and legendary radio personalities like Wolfman Jack, Dick Clark, Charlie Tuna, Don Imus, and the men who made talk radio what it is today, Rush Limbaugh, Howard Stern, Sean Hannity, and Glenn Beck. Hi, I'm Dave Denton. I'm a radio guy, and even went by that name on the air in Missouri. I'm a radio veteran who started spinning records in 1974 and have seen the industry change from 45s to LPs, carded music, CDs, and now music on hard drives. In this podcast, We'll take a look back, not only at my career, but other men and women who have worked in radio entertaining you. This is Radio Guy Reflections. Radio Guy Reflections is brought to you by Dave's Voice Works for radio commercials, narrations of a, a video project, and radio consultation. And soon, coming Dave's Rock, Rattle, and Roll Halloween Show. Let Dave's Voice Works work for you. Check out the website, daysvoiceworks.com, spell works, W-O-R-X. Past editions of Radio Guy Reflections are on the same podcast platforms, and uh, we have past editions with a man named Randy Oxenbein, who went from radio to become an engineer for a major TV station and religious organization. Rebecca Cressman joined us. She's a midday voice in Salt Lake City Radio and also the stadium announcer for the University of Utah Gymnastics Squad, which had members from that squad on the Olympic team this year. And Scott Gerard joined us, the Utah Sportscaster of the Year. And we also have a conversation with KT and Carrie, a morning show team in New Mexico, who not only are partners on the air, but also a husband and wife team. And we talk about the struggles of doing that, plus raising a son with severe autism. 
Today, our guest is a man, one of the best sportscasters I've ever known. He reported on high school sports, the NBA, auto racing, major college basketball, football, and on this podcast, a report he did, I believe it was in 1978, about the very first sporting event to be played under the lights. Uh, it's Bob Apoon joining us today, and welcome to Radio Guy Reflections, Bob. I'm honored to be in all that company. I uh, didn't realize I didn't realize how how, was, how honored I was to be here. Well, it is a great honor that you might deserve. <laughs> no, you deserve it, man. <laughs> I was just kidding. Hey, I got one question for you. Okay. You've done just about anything to do with sports, but have you ever have you ever reported on rodeo? Yes. <gasps> I, I thought I was going to get you on that one. Tell me about your rodeo experience. Well, uh, my hometown, this, this, this kind of ties into everything else you want to talk about growing up. But my hometown is, called, is a little town in southern Illinois called Ducoy, Illinois. D-U-Q-U-O-I-N. It's named for Chief Ducoy and the Illinois tribe. About 80 miles from St. Louis. Well, Ducoy had the first reclaimed strip mine that was turned into a fairgrounds 100 years ago. Uh-huh. And the family that owned it, the Hayes family, also had Coca-Cola bottling, so they had a lot of money. They created a fairgrounds with a racetrack and a grandstands and all other kinds of things and started the DeCoin State Fair. The DeCoin State Fair at its peak from the 40s to the 70s was as bigger, bigger than the Illinois State Fair in Springfield. And a lot of what I did growing up was go there and or cover it when I was in high school and college and right out of college. Well, Dave, one of the things they had there during that fair week was a rodeo. Oh, fun. So, of course, I would go over as part of our remote broadcast. It wasn't a play-by-play thing, but but, but as part of our remotes, which we would cover the entire fair, was I would go cover the rodeo as part of covering the fair. So it wasn't really extensive, but have I been around rodeos? Yes. Have I covered rodeos? Yes. Have I talked to cowboys? Yes. But did you step in? Right how, did you step in any horse puckies? Uh, not at the rodeo, but I have a pretty. My 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 aunt was an expert horse rider on uh-huh. the show circuit. In fact, she got written up in Sports Illustrated. Uh-huh. And so, growing up, my sister and I were pretty good horseback riders, and so I've 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 been around a lot of horses. See, I didn't know that about you, Bob. I figured you were like me, and rodeo was like. When asked to do rodeo, you're going, well, what in the world am I going to say about rodeo? I remember <laughs> doing it in uh, in Blackfoot, Idaho, and it was you know a nice little rodeo ground. I'm not saying anything bad about rodeo, but I'm not a rodeo fan. And to get to where I was going to be doing my broadcast from, and they had a little stand in the rodeo arena, I had to literally climb over four different fences carrying all that remote equipment, and I stepped in horse puckies. Uh, about four times. I was just so happy to do that, and <laughs> I had to get new shoes after that. It was, but anyway, that's, I'm just not a rodeo that's, fan. That's why, that's why they have cowboy boots, Dave. I know, <laughs> and I didn't have any at the time. So, uh, Well, Bob, uh, we've known each other, I think, 27 years now. Uh, when I first mm-hmm. came to Logan, Utah, you were working at the same radio station, and we've had lots of great conversations and a lot of fun over the years as friends. But I I think on this one, uh, I, I've i talked to people that have done sports radio. I've talked to people as disc jockeys and all that. But you knew from an early age that you wanted to be a sports announcer. Tell us about what what you would do to prepare yourself as a child 
you know, and with your friends playing basketball. I love this story. Well, it goes, it goes back even farther than that. Uh, again, in DuCoin, 80 miles from St. Louis, uh, my dad was a huge Cardinals fan. In fact, he just happened to be at Stan Musial's first game in 1941 by accident. But So, you know, Cardinal baseball was appointment listening on KMOX radio in the 50s. Mm-hmm. Well, the guys in the booth for KMOX that time were Harry Carey and Jack Buck, two Hall of Fame broadcasters, two of the greatest baseball broadcasters ever. Exactly. And so and so between following the Cardinals and my dad being a fan of the Cardinals and listening to those two guys in the booth, I was just enamored of the entire thing. Uh-huh. And then, of course, I was a big music fan as well. So I grew up with my passions being listening to music, listening to sports, and listening to music and sports on the radio. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I became a disc jockey and a sportscaster. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I kind of subconsciously knew very early on. I said, this sounds like something I could really like to do. Uh Well, then when I'm about 11, 12 years old, one of my best friends' parents uh, get he and his older brother a tape recorder. This is around 1959, 1960. I go to his house one day, and the three of us play around this tape recorder, and I'm just fascinated with this tape recorder, and I go back home and tell my parents, I've got to have one of these. Well, they relented, and about... At the age of 12, I got my own reel-to-reel tape recorder. Wow. Well, I immediately started taking that tape recorder out to our driveway where after school, I had a driveway that was just built for three-on-three basketball. Uh-huh. And so our, my friends would come over, and we'd start playing three-on-three basketball more days than not after school. And so I would just take that tape recorder out to the driveway, and we'd just start recording the games like sportscasters. Cool. One guy would, one guy would do color, one guy would do play-by-play, and the other guys would play. And we would rotate through being player, you know, doing all that stuff. It was it was just a lot of fun just goofing off, but so I'm 12, 13, 14 years old. I'm just starting to do that for fun with my buddies, and and you know then I'm but I'm trying to emulate what I'm also hearing from the guys I listen to on the radio all the time. Yeah. And so very early on, I knew that's what I wanted to do. Then I got into speech work in high in high school. And then I got into radio speaking. And I started working at the radio station on a, on a daily high, on a weekly high school radio show. And it, the thing just took off from there. It was yeah. just always what I wanted to do. The more I got into it, the more I knew that's what I wanted to do. Well, you know, it it gets into your blood. I, I guess, you know, you're one of those that's like me that it got into my blood. And I, I'm fascinated about how many times in the short time I've been doing this podcast that people have started doing in small town radio, doing reports for their high school. Eric Colley, uh, who I interviewed, I think it was the fourth one, who now works with small businesses uh, he actually started doing reports on the radio in Idaho Falls and then went on to a career in radio, TV, and uh, political, uh, being a political um, consultant, I guess, uh, for some senators and then went into helping out small businesses. And then uh, Randy Oxenbein, same thing. He did reports uh, for his high school in a small town radio station. So you you get this little background in radio how did that first job that you had to be a, quote, <laughs> disc jockey come about? Well, I'm going to tell you a quick story about my freshman year in high school first. Okay. You're, you're, you're reminding me of stuff. But the Coin, Illinois, population 7,000 had one little small town. One, like Ted Baxter said, it all started a little small town daytime a <laughs> which is what that was. And, uh, and they had a Saturday morning weekly high school radio show called DTHS on the air, the Coin Township High School on the air. And the speech club would go out and do an hour every Saturday. We would make assignments, you know, and, and, and do different stories during that hour. Well, my freshman year, my, I'm just barely in high school. I'm playing on the freshman football team. 
and the game was on Saturday morning. That's before the show. And so they said, well, why don't you play in the game and then come out and report on the game right after the game on the show? So my very first time on the air as part of this radio show was a Saturday morning right after I played in the game. Oh. And, and then I run out there, and I think, well, I don't even I – I said, I just played in this game. I can remember what I'm talking about. Well, I got out there and they turned the microphone on. I got no notes. I'm note-free because I don't know any better. And I just played, and I froze. <laughs> And I said, you know, that tells me something about preparation. You should probably do it. Yeah, that, it always <laughs> helps, doesn't it, Bob? And that was really my first lesson in preparation because I, I hadn't done any. And uh, so anyway, as I went through high school, very involved in speech work uh, and very involved in this weekly radio show. Well, between the radio show and my dad being a big retail sponsor uh, and advertiser, uh, these guys at the radio station knew exactly who I was. Uh-huh. And so when I wanted to start working part-time and go to school at the University of Denver, uh, they hired me to do part-time work on weekends in the summertime and in between, you know, uh, quarters of school and stuff. And so my first job was at my hometown station because I, that was just the perfect place for me to start. Well, you, you mentioned your dad uh, being in the retail business, and both you and I are huge St. Louis Cardinal baseball fans. Got to right. admit that. We talked about Cardinal baseball so many times <laughs> when we were getting paid to do other things. But uh, you told me a story one time about your dad and Easy Ed McCauley. Now, if yeah. that that name might not register for a lot of people. So I know who he is, but I think you uh, need to explain who Easy Ed McCauley was and what a huge sports star he is. Ed McCauley was an All-American basketball player at St. Louis in the late 40s. He went on to play for the Boston Celtics, and in fact, he was the MVP of the first ever NBA All-Star game, I think 1951. Wow. And then he, a long story short, it's, he was part of the biggest, one of the biggest trades in the history of pro sports. It was Bill Russell from the Hawks, St. Louis Hawks to the Boston Celtics, and he changed for Ed McCauley and Cliff Hagan. And on paper, that looked like a pretty good trade for both teams, but the Hawks won one title and the Celtics won 11. So that, yeah. you know, that wound up being a pretty good deal for the Celtics. But Ed... Uh, and my dad, at some point in time there, I'm not exactly sure how, but my father and Ed McCauley became pretty good friends uh, in the 50s. And my dad was a very, very good small businessman, and he had a Texaco Goodrich uh, franchise on the main drag in coin, and he wanted to expand it. So he bought the empty lot next to his gas station and turned it into a store, and then he, he expanded the store into a full-scale appliance and sporting goods store in the, in the 1963. And so he told Ed what he was going to do, and Ed said, you tell me when you want to have the grand opening, and I'll bring another guy from St. Louis with me, and we'll be there all day to sign autographs as part of the grand opening. And so it turned out this was October of 63 when I'm 15 years old, and uh, it's Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, grand opening day, and we don't know who Ed's bringing. And 8 o'clock, whatever time it was, early Saturday morning, Ed pulls up into the parking lot, and of course I'm 15 years old, and sports geek, my feet are six feet off the ground, and Ed gets out of the car. We see a second guy in the front seat. We don't know who it is. And Ed says, well, I tried to get Stan. He couldn't make it, so this is the best I could do. And out steps Red Shandy's. Whoa. We spent the day with Ed McCauley and Red Shandy's. Now, it was actually my first big interview. The radio station obviously wanted both those guys out there for an interview. And my dad says, yeah, sure, as long as my son gets to do it. <laughs> and so that was when, in fact, I still have that tape today. And I, when I, I found that tape a couple years ago, and I listened to it, and I said, what was I thinking? <laughs> Now, for those that are not huge uh, sports fans, 
When you mentioned red chainings and you mentioned the St. Louis Cardinals, uh, probably the in St. Louis and you know Cardinal fans, the the only name that might top uh, or might top uh, red chainings would be Stan the Man Musial, or maybe Albert well, Pujols now. But Red is a legend in St. Louis and in baseball. Well, he was he was the second baseman for the for the, for the great Cardinal teams, and then he was the manager when they won the World Series in 1967. And then he just passed away about two years ago. But yeah. if you take if you take Cardinal fans over the years, it's Stan Red, uh, Lou Brock, Bob Gibson, Ozzy Smith, and Albert Pujols would be those guys. Right, it really would. So you you got to meet uh, these two St. Louis legends, and really legends in sports uh, at the oh. age of fifteen. That's that's amazing. But you also said there was a time when you were with your dad in in the basement and uh yeah there was some good stories good stories going on there you want to hear you want me to tell the red the red sandy story you, you go for it man i love it so after the grand opening that day uh at the store my dad takes ed and red back to our house and, well he has a beautiful big wet bar down in our basement and so they're just going to sit there and tell stories and have a couple of drinks and of course i'm just sitting there like a you know i'm soaking it in like a sponge well, it turned out the red had an affinity for Cuddy Sark Scotch, <laughs> which my dad just happened to have on hand. And the more Cuddy Sark the red drank, the better the stories got. <laughs> and this story, well, I'll never forget him telling stories. Ed, red Shandies and Stan Musial were best friends the entire time, and they were roommates on the road back in the 40s and 50s when you always had a roommate. And so Red's last year as a player was 1962, and in 1963, he was a coach. Stan's last year as a player was 1963, and Stan, late in the season, announced he was retired. So when Red's telling me this story, this is right after the season ends, so this is like just happened. And Stan comes to Red. He says, Red, you know, I'm making my last road trip to New York this weekend as a player. He says, you and I don't ever do what we used to do. He says, let's room together on this last road trip and go out and hit the town on Saturday night because they never played me on a Sunday after Sunday afternoon after a Saturday night game. So Red's like, you know, Red says, no problem for me. So Red and Stan go to New York. They room together for the road trip, you know, final time around. They go out that night in New York and hit the town. They come back late at night to the hotel. What they don't know is the manager, Johnny Keene, stays up late in the hotel lobby to see who comes in breaking curfew. <laughs> and so unbeknownst to these two guys coming in, not feeling a whole lot of pain, Johnny Keene's watching them come in at 2 o'clock in the morning, doesn't say a word. Next day, they show up at the ballpark, and the lineup posted on the dugout and says, Stan Musil batting fifth play in first base. Woo. <laughs> and he was probably yeah. a might bit hungover. And he didn't see it coming. Red said he was sweating bullets. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, I go, well, what happened? He goes, he goes two for three and takes himself out for a pinch runner. <laughs> that was Stan Musil. That, that was Stan. Yeah. So in high school, you already mentioned you you went to, to the University of Denver, uh, yeah. And uh, then, what happened when you were uh, at the University of Denver, which was a hockey school at the time? Yeah. Well, I became the sports director of the campus radio station, and <clears throat> I did play by play for the basketball team because I didn't know enough about hockey to do it. I did learn a lot about hockey because you had no. Ch- when I was there, they won the national championship, NCAA championship. Right. They're, they're still one of the top hockey schools in America. Uh, I found out what a frozen four meant. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, but, you know, you had to learn about hockey, especially if you're the sports director of the campus station. But uh-huh. I did play-by-play for the basketball team. Uh-huh. And they weren't very good. 
but it was a great learning experience because, you know, it's, you know, I'm doing a daily sports cast, I'm doing a daily jock show, and I'm doing play-by-play for basketball, I'm going to hockey games, and, and in the middle of all that, somewhere I found time to go to class. And then uh, that was my time at the University of Denver. Uh-huh. That's also when I got married. That's also when I got married. So. That's what I was going to say. Didn't that where you met your your wife Jan, or did you well, know we, each we, other? We know we we grew up together. Okay. Uh, it just happened, and our first date was when we were both in college. She was at the University of Illinois, and I was at Denver, but I was back home in Decoin. And in fact, this is how big the state fair was. They had majors. They had a night show with major acts, and so Labor Day of nineteen sixty-seven was uh, Louis Armstrong, and I asked her out that night, and. Uh, the rest is history. <laughs> How long have you guys been married? Uh, 52 years. Wow. And she's a, a wonderful, wonderful woman. I just think the world of both of you. And But the, there's the, about this time you started, uh, I think it was in the, the 70s, you were on the radio in Danville. Is, is this where all this happened, Danville, Illinois? Well, uh, right, right out of college, I went back to my hometown of Decoin and worked there for two and a half years because I knew – I could do anything. I knew at that station I could do anything I wanted to do, and I could have tape for everything. Right. I had baseball. I had football. I had basketball. I had auto racing. I had remotes from the fair. I had jock shows. I had newscasts. I had sports. I mean, I had everything. Right. And so I parlayed that into a job in Bradford, Pennsylvania, 1973, which is 80 miles from Buffalo. And so I was out in Bradford from 1973 to 77, also known to those folks out there as the O.J. Simpson years, which is another story. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and uh, then in 1977, I parlayed that into a job in Danville, Illinois, which is uh, 30 miles from, uh, east of Champaign. I'm sorry, 30 miles west of Champaign and 75 miles east of Indianapolis, right on the Illinois-Indiana border. Mm-hmm. And so I was there from 77 to 88 when I came to Logan, Utah in 1988. Well, while you were in Danville, uh, you had, you were had a, a great opportunity to talk about history and sports history with a man who made that history. And uh, it was a story about high school football, but the first event held under the lights. The, tell us about the, Give us the, the background a little bit, and then we're going to play that interview. Well, it just happened. I, I moved to Danville in 1977, and uh, Danville, of course, like many towns of that size, is surrounded by a lot of smaller towns, and they all had their own schools. Uh, in, in Vermilion County, Illinois. And it just turned out that Westville, Illinois, in 1928, had the first ever high school nighttime football game, and as near as we can tell, the first ever nighttime sporting event in, uh, in America. So in 1978, the town of Westville held the 50th anniversary of the first ever nighttime football game. Well, this happened that the guy who thought of it was the principal of the Westville High School named Russell Gwynn, and Russell was still very much with us in 1978, and I knew Russell very well because he and I were in the same service club. So I got him out to the radio station in a 15-minute interview, and I knocked that interview down into a three-minute feature piece. And that feature piece, which you're going to play, turned out really well. And, you know, several people at the radio station said, man, that's really good. We said, let's, let's call CBS and see if CBS wants. We were CBS affiliates. So CBS said, yeah, that's great. We're going to take that piece. Well, CBS then took that piece and gave it to Charlie Osgood back when Charlie was doing the Osgood Files. Wow. And so you're going to hear what I did first, which I'm, you know, to this day, I'm very proud of that three minutes. I just thought it was really fun, you know, just a little fascinating little piece of, of history. And then you'll hear what Charles Osgood did to turn it into one of his famous poems. Yeah, it is. Both of them are really good. And because you sent me that uh, that interview uh, first and I listened to it and 
I mean, it sounds like Baba Boom, but just a little bit younger, you know. So yeah, well, it's a three-minute piece, and it's really, really good, Bob. Thank you. Why don't we play that right now? Tell us the man's name one more time. The name of the guy who started all this, uh, and, and, and whose idea this was in 1928, was Russell Wynn. And remember that name because it comes in very uh, big during the Charles Osgood poem, too. Yeah, it does. Okay, so we're going to take a quick break. You're going to listen to... Uh, Charles Osgood plus Bob with Russell Wynn. We're going to do Bob's interview first and then see what Charlie Osgood did. And he, he's a legend in radio too. But listen to this on Radio Guy Reflections. Jack sent us the story of the night the lights went on. Tomorrow night when Westville hosts Oakwood, they'll celebrate the 50th anniversary of the first nighttime high school football game. For that matter, one of the first nighttime athletic contests, period. It seems strange that something which is now a staple of the American sports fan could begin under such casual circumstances. But it is a fact that many great ideas start just that way. The man who hit on this brainstorm was Russell Gwynn, who at the time was principal of Westville High School and even today is a very active chairman of the board of Interstate Printing and Publishing in Danville. All Mr. Gwynn was trying to do at the time was figure out a way that the many coal miners who lived in the area and worked during the day could get to the game and greatly increase his crowd size. Driving through Danville, he saw a filling station lit up at night and thought, if one pole could light up a driveway, why couldn't several light up a football field? Well, the eventual numbers were 14 poles with 28 lights at a cost of something less than $200. As Gwynn tells the story, the Westville School Board found out about his idea not too long before the game, and they were less than thrilled. But the school board didn't really find out about it until about one day before the game should late do anything. And there was one fellow was... He was kind of opposed to it when he heard the rumor, but he was very proud of it afterward. He said, that's the way we do things down here. You eventually wound up playing Milford, and for the record, Westville won the ball game 28-6. to But uh, as you related it to me, the lights actually got put up on the Wednesday before the Friday night game, and your only practice under the lights was on Thursday. And your fellows made an interesting discovery at that time. We made a, this discovery that you had good light on the ground, but when they punted the ball, it went up beyond the range of the lights. And uh, you couldn't see it very well. So we solved that. Had to paint the football white. Painted the football white, and the dew got on, and it got slipperier than glass, and that made lots of fumbles in the first game. While it may not have been a success artistically, there was little doubt about what it did financially. We had the game on Friday afternoon, and uh, the mines didn't work. We might have had eight, 900, I expect. Mm -hmm. As it was, uh, <laughs> Well, I know how much we collected. I think we charged them 50 cents to get in. We took in $2,000. But they tore the fences down, and uh, so many people came, but we didn't collect from everybody. So you more than quadrupled your crowd size, so everything paid for itself in just the very first ball game. Well, that's right. We paid all the bills and gave, uh, gave Milford uh, more than we'd ever given them for coming down there and had uh, $1,000 left in the bank, I think. The reaction nationwide was immediate, and within the next few years, nighttime sporting events became a staple. Although it is significant to note that even then, it took almost 10 years before Major League Baseball did it on a regular basis. As for the pioneer who started it, Russell Gwynn, he had no idea at the time of the significance of what he started. Well, I didn't even know if we'd be playing a second game. <laughs> the story of the night the lights went on. Today's Action on the News. This is Bob Athrone. Reflection. 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 Reflection.
September 23, 1928, a football game occurred, which in its way was special in the history of sport. But right after this, we'll tell you in today's Newsbreak report. The concerto. You just can't buy a better theater so far. One night in 1928, a man named Russell Gwynn was thinking of the football game his football team was in. Gwynn was then the principal, the boss of Westville High. Another school in Milford, Illinois, a town nearby, would play before a football crowd that Gwynn believed too small. Well, miners working in the mines could not attend at all. The miners worked by day, of course. It wasn't a shame. They'd have to miss the Westville Milford High School football game. As principal of Westville High, this fellow Russell Gwynn was pretty sure his team would score, that Westville High would win. The enterprise would take. A tiny crowd would mean the tiny money they would make. While pondering this situation, Gwynn got gas at a station there in Danville that he often chanced to pass. It was night, and yet the station seemed to function even so. A strong light on a pole cast down an ample sort of glow. And suddenly, the idea hit. And Russell Gwynn then knew they'd play the game when all the mining men could see it too. They'd play their game, the 23rd. They'd play it under light. They would have their football game, but not by day, but night. He ordered 14 lights put up on 14 separate poles to light up all the yard lines and the sidelines and the goals. No objections from officials or from the school board came. The school board didn't really find out about it until about one day before the game. They had some practice sessions. Wynn remembers well those nights. But when they punted the ball, it went up beyond the range of the light. Any ball above the stanchions disappeared, the truth to tell. Wynn says it was less than perfect. And they couldn't see it very well. So they put paint on the ball itself. Still hard to catch a pass. Paint the football white, the new got on, and they got slipperier than glass. It's a night he'll long remember, will Mr. Russell win the night that Westville triumphed, 26-6, their win. And the crowd, it was terrific. A lot of dough did they collect. We had the game on Friday afternoon, and uh, the mines didn't work. We might have had 8900 I expect. But with that night attendance, and with Gwynn's idea to bank, they could buy the lights and then some. They had thousand dollars left the bank. Fifty years have come and gone. And sports are not the same. Well, I didn't even know it wouldn't be playing the second game. <laughs> so, to all of you who suffer when there is some game at night, because someone near and dear to you is lost and out of sight, to lonely wives and sweethearts, and Legion is your name, now you know the culprit, the one who is to blame. The nighttime games outdoors, which nowadays are all the rage, prefer the nighttime indoor sports you'd rather engage. If he is at some ball game, or maybe at the track, at least you wishing someone out if the good old days were back. If nighttime sports are just a curse, another bitter pill, just be advised that Russell Gwynn, the man you want to kill. Now this message. Hi, this is Dave Denton. Let my voice go to work for you. It's DavesVoiceWorks.com. Spell works, W-O-R-X. And you can hear samples of my on-air work and also some of the commercials I've done over the years. And while you're there, check out my other podcast, which is called Radio Guy Reflections. There's pictures from some of my career and more, all at daysvoiceworks.com. Daysvoiceworks.com, spell works, W-O-R-X. Past episodes of Radio Guy Reflections can be heard on Spotify, Google Podcast, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Radio Breaker, 
and Aker. Thanks for listening to Radio Guy Radio Reflections. Guy Reflections. That was a great interview, Bob, and that's one of the things I've always admired about you. I, you do great interviews, especially when you're you're talking sports and stuff. And you took that 15 minutes down to a three-minute report, and that's tough to do, but you did a really good job. And then when you find out Charles Osgood is going to be using part of your work on this national radio show, you had to be proud of that too. Well, I just, you know, the, the, way, he's, the way he does stuff and turns it into poems, this fascinates me, and it was one when when I was directly involved in it. I know exactly what he'd done. I was just I was blown away. Yeah, that had to be that's one of the highlights of your career, I'm sure. But you've had a lot of highlights. We're going to move on now. Uh, we're going to get into uh, your professional career uh, at the University of Illinois, the Fighting Illini. Tell us what you did for the University of Illinois. Well, when I was in Danville, University of Illinois did not have a specific radio contract, exclusive radio contract with anybody. Uh-huh. And so anybody could broadcast the games as long as they paid a rights fee. So when I moved to Danville, we decided to start uh, doing originating University of Illinois football and basketball games. And we built our own little network. We were actually building a pretty good network when Illinois sold their exclusivity to Budweiser and we got shut out. But that was, that was five years down the road. So from 78 to 83... Uh, I did play-by-play for University of Illinois football and basketball. Uh-huh. And what were some of the highlights uh, during that time frame? Uh, players that people might recognize their name uh, uh, during that time frame when you're doing uh, play-by-play. Well, let's see. In, in football, I'd have to think about this first. I'm not quite sure in football who I could draw up real quickly about uh, during that time. Uh, Jack Squirek, who played for the Raiders, was there. A couple other guys. They didn't have any big football superstars during that time. Uh-huh. Uh, in basketball, the one you would recognize the most would be Eddie Johnson. Oh, okay, yeah. Who uh, became a really big player for in the NBA, I think, with Seattle. And, in fact, Utah Jazz fans know him as a jazz killer because he was <laughs> always hitting big threes against them. Uh, but Eddie Johnson had the winning basket against Michigan State and Magic Johnson for the Michigan State's only loss here. They won the national championship. So Wow. And that ties into Salt Lake City because that's where that game was held against That's Larry right. Bird and, and everything. And, uh, yeah, I remember watching that championship game because I had some ties to Utah, but I wasn't <laughs> living in Utah at the time. So uh, let's talk about doing play-by-play because there's an art to it. now, And everybody has their different ways of doing it. I watched you over the years and your preparation and, and, your, and your flow charts and your charts for the lineup. Who taught you all that, how, how to get that done? Well, a lot of it was osmosis. A lot of it was just talking to other people who had done it before me, and a lot of it was just was developing my own system and, and how I wanted to do it. But, I, you know, my first lesson my freshman year in high school was preparation was a big part of doing it. <laughs> and then the other thing I would say, and, and this is not just me, and this is not just my profession in sports casting or as a disc jockey, but most people in most professions will tell you this if they, if they, do, if they do well is that you have to be your own worst critic. And, and I was certainly my own worst critic. And so I would re- everything I did, I, re- I recorded it. I, everything I did, I recorded it. And I went back home and listened to it. And sometimes I'd listen to it more than once to, to critique myself as to what I liked and what I didn't like and what, what I would change and what I would you know, keep doing the same way. And that's very important because, like you said, you're your own worst critic. And 
I did the same thing. I, you know, I didn't concentrate in sports like you did. Uh, mine was more of the on-air presentation. But I also, when when you said that, I can see you sitting there listening to it, and then you went, oh, why did I say that, or why did I do it that way? Did you ever listen to other sportscasters and say, I like the way they they went in and out of the commercials or they liked how, how they did a play or how they set it up and incorporate that into your presentation as a sportscaster? Well, certainly when I was a kid, you know, it started with Harry Carey and Jack Buck because Jack was the ultimate of cool and Harry was the ultimate of hot. Uh-huh. And so I took what I liked the best of both of them and tried to, and tried to incorporate it into what I did. And then as, you know, as time went on, I would listen to different guys and say, you know, what do I like what they did or did I not like what they did? But, uh, basically, I, I developed after I got started. It was pretty much trying to get my own style, my own pace, my own tempo, you know, my own phraseology, you know, all those things you you try to do. But you subconsciously you're also listening, in, you know, to people who you listened to growing up, trying to emulate what you like best about them. But certainly that's where it started. Yeah, it's not necessarily copying, but it is like you said, emulating. And I, I you can say the same thing about me because. Uh, I used to listen to Rick D's in the morning and, you know, me with my, my morning show was a little bit crazy, but not quite as crazy as his. Uh, but yeah, emulating well, you, guy, when I was doing, when I was doing jock work and I, you know, I did, I did my share of disc jockey shows too, as yeah. you know, but the, the disc jockey whose style I tried to emulate a little bit in terms of his t- pacing and tempo and his delivery was Larry Lujak. Oh yeah. On the WLS in Chicago. He was the guy that I listened, that I listened to a lot that it, that I liked the way he did things, his tongue-in-cheek sarcasm, and you know, a lot of what he did kind of fell into my own sense of humor, my own, my own style. Well, you were talking about WLS and Larry Lujak. They also had another very famous announcer named John Records Landecker. I know you've heard him. So, uh, yeah. and you know, I'm a little bit far away from Chicago, so I didn't get to listen to WLS a whole lot. But I remember once, and I was visiting my cousins. They were right along the Kentucky-Tennessee border, and we were sitting outside trying to find radio stations to listen to us. A lot of guys our age would do. We'd take that little AM dial and turn it really, really slow to get to whatever we wanted to listen to, and we came across WLS. And I might have told this story before. I'm going to tell it again because I thought it was perfect when when I heard it on the air, and I laugh. still makes me laugh. As uh, John Records Landecker was doing a late night, I think it was overnight at this time, and he was cueing the record. You know, we've talked about cueing, and you know what slip cueing is because you've done it a million times. That's oh, yeah. where you get the the needle right at the very point of where the song starts, the music or whatever point of the music you want to start, and you hold on to the side of the record. Well, <laughs> John Records Landecker did that to some song, can't remember what it was, and he didn't do it right. And he's live on the air, and he goes, right into the song. And (laughs) at that point, I just thought, hey, this is live. So you go with it. Instead of saying, oh, man, I messed up and not having fun with it, he actually stopped the record right in the middle of it. He says, we can't have that. That's not good. And he actually cued the record on the air, the little that you know some modern djs use right now as part of the music but he goes he says okay i think i got it and he talks about slip cueing and then he lets it go and does just a perfect intro over this record and to me that's what radio should be should be about fun and you know if you make a mistake you're going to 
go with it and and not not worry about your job. But I just well, thought that was perfect live radio. People, there, there are people listening to this day. We're going to say, "What's a turntable?" But the other thing about a turntable <laughs> was, you know, especially back in the sixties and seventies when we were starting out, the turntables had the three different speeds: thirty-three, forty-five, and seventy-eight. And so you had to make sure you had the right speed for the record you had on the turntable. And there's all sign up and see was a caution: make sure you have the correct speed on the turntable. <laughs> and more than once, you did not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I understand. Yeah, I've done that before. And then uh, there's another secret about radio. Uh, certain songs uh, that were over two and a half minutes long, uh, they yeah. got, you know, kind of got some popularity because nature was calling and you didn't have call waiting. You know, you, you, yeah. you had your MacArthur Parks, you had uh, Stairway to Heaven. Uh, and it, I always knew later on when I heard one of those songs, oh, somebody's probably in the bathroom. You know, that ever happened to you? <laughs> Uh, well, I'll tell you the best one. My my first year working in, uh, in DuCoin, they, they had a dinner, a supper hour show called Bandstand 1580. And all you're supposed to do from 6 to 7 o'clock, and I, I did a 6 to 7 o'clock on Saturday night, you're just supposed to track instrumental records for an hour. Like, like dinner hour music, right? Right. And so, I don't, I mean, half these things, I mean, it's Ronnie and Teicher and Henry Mancini and Ray Conniff and all these people. And so I find this in the in the uh, uh, library, and it's got a, it says 15 minutes on the length of the cut. And so I got fifth. I said, if I play this for 15 minutes, I got time to go to the bathroom, have a hand sandwich and a coke. <laughs> this is this is like I'm not even working. So I played this record, and what turns out out of the 15 minutes, about 10 minutes of it is a drum solo. <laughs> oh, great! And so now, they remember, I'm only 18. This is my first summer work, and I, I, I'm, this is between my senior year in high school, and my freshman year in college, where I even went up to college. And the, my guy who hired me, the station manager, halfway through this record, calls me up and says, "Hey, uh, when that record's over, would you uh, put it on the side of the table, please?" I said, "Sure." So I put the record off to the side and start. The record's over and something else starts to play. And he comes walking in just out of nowhere. He says, was that the record there? I said, yeah. He takes it over his knee and snaps it in two and throws it in the wastebasket and walks out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that was a great thing about small town radio back in the day. They would have, like you said, the dinner music hour. They would have uh, different formats that would run only for an hour or two hours. The radio shows were really popular then. And oh, yeah. one of the things that I had to do that I wasn't, real fond of and i found ways to get around doing anything with it just sat back and took a nap uh was in paris tennessee we had a gospel music hour now nothing against gospel music don't get me wrong but this was the southern gospel quartets and it just wasn't music that i i still to this day i, I don't like listening to it uh, and i mean we're not talking oak ridge boys or the statler brothers this was pretty bad, almost bluegrass. It just it was just nasty music as far as I'm concerned. And I would just put on an album and just walk away and let it actually go between the cuts and you'd hear dead air and everything. I just I just couldn't do that. But that was a great thing about small radio at the time. You could do different things and try to become and I think this is a lost art in small market radio today become something that is local 
instead of cookie cutter radio. We've talked about that when we were still working together, how radio has become kind of cookie cutter. I mean, there's uh, everybody just kind of copies everybody. You ever find that out? Oh, there's no question about it. The, the, the more, the better the technology got, the less creative it got. Right. I agree. Well, you know, today, uh, most of the radio stations that you hear and you hear a disc jockey on there more than likely in the midday or at night, uh, they're either not in town or they're from out of town or they're doing yep. other things at the radio station and pre-recorded yeah. it. That's just the yeah. way technology. And that's there. there is an advantage to that, but the big disadvantage is I think you missed that connection with your audience. And I don't know if you found that well, out while you were working with us. I think, I think more and more that, you know, most morning shows are still local and still you know, locally relatable in most markets. And so there's still spontaneity there, but after that, it goes downhill fast, very fast. And, uh, I think is when I was talking with, uh, JJ Jeffries, uh, who's been in radio in Seattle and he was also in Idaho and Wyoming, uh, did some stuff in Texas and Iowa. I mean, he's been all over. I think he and I were talking about that very thing about that local relatability. And I think that's where small market radio could have an advantage over a big market radio station in their community if they become a community radio station. I'm not talking about splitting up their format, doing, you know, big band during the dinner hour and all that, but doing things that make them local, I think is something that is a lost art right now in radio, especially small town radio. Yep. I agree. So Bob, uh, you, you've done work at the university of Denver You've done high schools. Uh, you've been working uh, in, near near Buffalo. You also have done auto racing. I want to talk about auto racing real quick because you told me a story one time about Jackie Stewart. And I, I think this is um, uh, one of the great uh, – did, did he do Indy or just Formula One? I can't remember. He did both. He, he was ABC's main guy for years. Yeah, and a great race car driver. But you witnessed something that was historic with his career when he quit. And I want you to explain that story because uh, this is, uh, this shows you how much people care. I moved to Bradford, Pennsylvania, and the Bradford, Pennsylvania is a home base for Kendall Oil. And that was about an hour, hour and a half drive away from Watkins Glen, New York. And Watkins Glen at that time uh, was the major road course for international auto racing in the United States. And so Kendall was a major sponsor of Watkins Glen, New York racing. And so Watkins Glen was the host of the United States Grand Prix every fall. And Kendall knew I had a background in auto racing because of my time in DeCoin and what I had done there. And so they decided they wanted to start covering the, the racing on the local radio station in Bradford and be a major sponsor, corporate sponsor, and send me over to cover the races and, and give Kendall Oil a presence in their hometown. And so in 1974, I'm covering the United States Grand Prix in Watkins Glen, New York. And Kendall had a, Kendall had a suite that they had built that was up right above what used to be the old start finish line when Watkins Glen rebuilt the track. And now, but now it's just part of like turn one, but directly below the suite was where the Red Cross emergency medical booth was. Okay. Uh-huh. And so Jackie Stewart at that time was at the absolute peak. Jackie Stewart was the man in, in, in the international auto racing. He was the Formula One champion like three or four years running. 
uh, he was he was the, the you know, king. Uh-huh. And his teammate, his teammate, they had, they always ran in teams. His teammate on that team was a young Frenchman named Francois Sever. You don't get a better name than that, Francois Sever. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a rumor that Jackie was going to retire after this race, but nobody knew for sure. Well, it just happened that I went to the garage between, and this is qualifying day, so this is the day before the race. And during qualifying, I went to the garage, and I just happened to see Francois Severe sitting there by himself. And so I said, do you mind if I do an interview? He said, no, fine. And so I interviewed Francois. I still have this tape. It's still chilling to listen to. I interviewed Francois Severe in classic French accent, nice guy. I said, thank you very much. I go back to the booth. I play the interview. Qualifying goes on about a half hour later. Qualifying gets red flagged. Well, what happened was Francois Severe had driven into a guardrail and got decapitated. Oh, man. And it took a while to, for everybody to find that out. And I, I think I'm the last guy that talked to Francois Severe that was not part of his pit crew. Right. But I'm watching Jackie Stewart walk up to the Red Cross booth below me with his helmet on. And they're telling Jackie that what happened to Francois, that he was gone. And Jackie pulled off his helmet, dropped it on the ground, walked away, pull out of the race and never drove again. And I just have, I just have me looking right at it. And I imagine something like that, you know, uh, hitting the racing community that the entire press box, all the, the people in the garages, there had to be just a great deal of sadness. What were you witnessing that day? Well, that's what I mean. It's, you know, especially back then, auto racing was much more dangerous sport then than it is now. Exactly. But, you know, when that happened, they, you know, they, death is part of the sport, quite frankly. Jackie mm-hmm. quit because he was thinking about it anyway, but everybody else just went on. Wow. Unreal. Unreal. So you, you've done reports uh, for the Buffalo Braves. You were doing reports for them, too, when a player named Bob McAdoo was there, one of the great names. So yep. you, you've done NBA, you've done auto racing. You've even done rodeo. I was still surprised about that. <laughs> But uh, let's talk about, you know, going from the University of Illinois and how you wound up to be the play-by-play man for the Utah State Aggies. Well, a two-part story. First of all, I, I, and uh, Jan and I both realized with what we're doing with our careers, we, we needed to make a move someplace else to where we were. We could not go any further in Danville than what we were doing. She was a teacher and I was in the radio business. And so we wanted to go to someplace that was a college town and and, and get – me be the college play-by-play voice, and she get into the university. Well, it almost happened at the University of Cincinnati in 1986. It's a, it's a very interesting story how it didn't, but I don't want to take up all your time. I thought I was going to Cincinnati in 86. It didn't happen with the Bearcats. And then uh, in 19, early 1988, Utah State did a national advertisement in both broadcasting and radio and record magazines, which were the two major trades. And in both cases, they, they opened up the play-by-play job for Utah State to a national search, total national search. And it also says sales experience helpful. Well, I was a sportscaster who did sales. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I sent in my resume to uh, the group who done this, put this together, and I know there were several, I know there were several hundred people who, who applied for it. And uh, Steve and Morgan Skinner were the two main guys who, who put it together, who owned it, but then there were 
had Rod Tuller, who was then the athletic director, and Sid Smith, who was the alumni director. The four of them were basically together in, on this project to put together a brand new Utah State Sports Radio Network with a brand new play-by-play guy. That's what they wanted to do. Right. And, it, and they wanted to increase their coverage in Salt Lake City, enhance their base, you know, all the things you want to do when you want to expand what your, your coverage is, which is what Utah State wanted to do. And when they got everybody they liked, they took what they thought were their top ten guys and sent out the top ten tapes and resumes to four separate state broadcast organizations to rank them. Well, this happened. I came back number one on every single ranking. Oh, cool. And so that's when they called me and said, are you interested in coming out here and pursuing this job? Well, of course I was. And so I came out there in the spring of 88 and became the play-by-play voice of Utah State starting with the 88-89 season. And I think, Dave, the thing I'm proudest of of that whole thing was it was an actual national search period mm-hmm. with no ingrown prejudices, no nothing except a national search. Get the best guy for the job that you can get. Right. And that's what, that's what they did. And uh, so how long uh, were you with uh, Utah State uh, as as a broadcaster doing their basketball and football? Uh, as a play-by-play voice, I was on from 1988 to 1995. Okay. I didn't realize it was that long because uh, yeah. right the, your last year was about the time I was hired uh, to come yeah. into the radio station. Yeah. But when you when you when you started was 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 the last basketball season. Right. That that's exactly right. So Bob, um, during this time, uh, Utah State football, and it's still the same way. They're either really good or they're really bad. You know, we we've both witnessed ups and downs with the Utah State athletic program. But uh, you did uh, play-by-play for a guy that went on to become a major star in the Canadian Football League. Tell us about that. Yeah. Well, uh, in 1992, Chuck Shelton resigned as head football coach. Uh, and and I, Chuck and I got along great, but he was a victim of Utah State being a, in a bad conference and having to overschedule and, you know, all those things that have to happen. And so Chuck decided to, to quit after the 91 season, and they – Utah State hired Charlie Weatherby, uh, who had been the offensive coordinator in Arkansas, to come in and be the head coach. Uh-huh. And Charlie was just a different breed of cat. Uh, and he brought in Jim Zorn, the great Seattle Seahawks quarterback. At that time, Jim was at Boise State to be his offensive coordinator. And Jim said, I'll come, but if I do, I want to bring this quarterback. I've been recruiting to Boise State with me because I think he'll come to play Utah State because it's a step up for him from Boise State at that time. At that time, yeah. And, and so he brings with him Anthony Calvillo. And, uh, and so in 1992, they, they showed signs of being good, but they, they weren't, you know, they were just up and down. Well, in 93, everything, everything came together for that team. Uh, they had a, they beat, that's the team that beat BYU 58-56, which is still maybe the biggest play, single play I ever caught was Calvillo scoring a touchdown after he almost broke his leg. Uh-huh in that 58-56 Classic, and then they went on to win the Las Vegas Bowl, which was their first bowl victory ever. And Anthony was the MVP of that game. And then Anthony goes on to play in the Canadian Football League, where he became basically the Brett Favre of Canadian football. That's right. Played played for like 100 years. Uh, He's now in the CFL Hall of Fame. And he was, to say a cerebral quarterback would be an understatement, he was really smart. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why he played for as long as he did in Canada. That had to be a, a real pleasure to watch him play, and then that that classic game. I mean, BYU Utah State, uh, one of the highest scoring games ever, and 
but you were doing that play by play. And I, I remember hearing the tape that you're talking about where uh, Anthony almost broke his leg and scored that touchdown. Still, yeah. when you talk and you talk to people in the West that are, are football fans, they talk about that game as being one of the best ever uh, with BYU and Utah State, a pretty good rivalry still to this day. Uh, but as you w- walked on, uh, I saw Anthony when his Canadian football team was actually playing in Las Vegas. Right. Uh, yeah, and uh, I watched him in a practice, and I remember because I was starting really into college football at the time, and I was so excited to see him play. This was way before you and I even met, and I right. watched him play a uh, practice on the parking lot behind the Riviera uh, casino. Right. And uh, that was one of my favorite memories. I sat there for about four hours, uh, just getting ready for the practice, watching the practices and seeing all the scrimmages they were doing. But Bob, yeah. all good things must come to an end. And about the time that I showed up, it was February of 95, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you were doing radio show, uh, you were also doing play-by-play, and you were doing sales. You were doing all of that and trying to have a life. That that had to be an interesting time for you uh, because, you know, doing a radio program has some stress to it. And then when you're doing a major college sport like Utah State, basketball and football, there's a lot of time involved with that. How did you find time to do sales? <laughs> Honestly, I, I mean, had, I had uh, at that time I, I was doing play-by-play for football, and basketball. We had a, a daily feature that I had to put together called Aggie Sports Report. I remember that? Yeah, we had a weekly sports talk show that ran on Saturday morning, and I had a jock shift that ran three hours a day, and then I did sales. Uh, somewhere in there, I don't ask me. I don't know. I don't remember. My <laughs> mind's a blank. Very foggy. Well, when I when I came in, and I, still, I, I was uh, and my and my wife and daughter never left me. So <laughs> that's the biggie right there because you and I put in some major hours at uh, KGNT, the Country Giant. When I came in, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Bob. I don't know if I've ever told you the story, but you'll remember this time frame. Uh, Utah State. Somebody had brought in Tim McGraw, great country star, but he was just at the beginning of his career, and there was yes. a concert about this time. And yes. the radio station did a contest, and they had a backstage meet and greet. And I came in when they were getting ready for this, uh, this uh, this thing, and then I took the job right after the concert. And I remember being in town right after I had taken the job, and I'm driving south towards Salt Lake City where I was living, and I heard the promo come on congratulating your winner are winners and you didn't do this but i remember being so shocked that they used one of tim mcgraw's slower songs don't take the girl as the music behind something that should have been exciting and i was just floored at excuse me how poor some of the presentation was going on at kgnt there was and that was one of the things I was brought in for was to get the presentation better. But yeah. I remember driving. Yeah, I, and, and, I, 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 I knew that, and I, and, I, and I agree with it. what you're saying. The problem is I ran out of time. I, somebody, I couldn't do all of it. I was, I was actually going to say that. I mean, you're a pro, and I knew you knew better because I had 
I, I knew better. You know, I knew that you know, knew better. But there was also a time shortly after uh, I got there and we, we started, you know, really started to cook a little bit. And then the station started having problems. And this happened a couple of days before I got married because they pulled me in and said, everybody's getting fired. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then they told me that I was going to be rehired and that you were going to be rehired. And I was really glad about that. But that's one of the things about radio that is really tough because a management decision, you know, it's right. It's it's people's lives. And there was a lot of angry people during that time frame. And we know a couple of them without getting into names, but there were reasons behind that firing. And you and I know what happened because we witnessed it. And we're just very yeah. glad that we both got uh, rehired and uh, our, right. our jobs went on. I'm not, I'm not going to get into all the particulars of that because first of all, it was too long ago. And second of all, it's just, not, but, but I will tell what I remember besides all that was a race to the bank to cash a check. Right. <laughs> they did that to me one time and I said, no pay, no play. You know, that's exactly what I told them. But uh, during that time, you were also go, do, dealing with some personal issues because you actually lost your gig as being the play-by-play voice for the yeah. Utah State Aggies. That had to be tough on you and your family. If you don't mind talking about that situation just a little bit. Well, I don't really want it, 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 I, I will tell you this. Our, our company lost. We had, we, we were in the third, we were going into the third year of a five, we, we had a five-year contract from 88 to 93. Uh, there was a change in the administration. They put the contract up for rebid rather than just awarded to us. We won the rebid in 1993 for another five years. We were going into the third year of a five-year contract. And long story short, some things went on behind the scenes within the administration. And next thing we knew, uh, we didn't have the contract anymore. And it was a, it was an ugly, ugly situation. It was. Uh, a lot of things happened that I'm not going to go into now for a variety of reasons. But the way it happened uh, was, not, was not kosher. I'll just no. put it to you that way. It was not. It was, you know, I, I wasn't there when – Everything happened. I was kind of there at the aftermath. That's when I, I was trying to deal with that. And we decided to do um, reports from the games where you would actually go to the game, not doing play-by-play because we didn't have the contract, but they couldn't stop us from reporting on the game uh, for right. football and basketball. But you got to tell me one story about a guy that's been on our podcast before, Scott Gerard, because he was just starting – and he right. was board hopping uh, during a broadcast that you were doing your reports from a basketball game. You remember what I'm talking about here? Yeah, Scott still hates it when I tell the story. Yeah, he hates it when I tell the story, too. <laughs> but I was doing uh, drop-ins from the uh, Utah State basketball game one night, and that was like once every half hour. I forget what it was. Yeah. But for some reason, we were running the National Hockey League All-Star Game broadcast. And don't ask me why. I have reason, no idea either. For some reason, we had the National Hockey League All-Star Game on. And Scott was board hopping the game and then and then recording my drop-ins and put my drop-ins in the middle of the game during the game breaks. And so, uh, you know, he's just been there for less than a year. Kid about 19, 20 years old, I think. And, and uh, he... <laughs> How do I best say this? <laughs> he, goes, 
he goes, I'm waiting on him to tell me to go to do the countdown to start the report. And he goes, and he says this seriously. He wasn't joking. He said, you know, in hockey they have two half times." <laughs> oh. And I never let him forget. I have never let him forget that. Nor I. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's your Utah sportscaster of the year. But what a great guy. I mean, he's gone on. He is uh, now working at uh, 1280 The Zone. He does Utah State sports as the play-by-play man uh, for yeah. uh, basketball and for football, and he travels a lot. He's done all kinds of things. He, he was a great guy, and I like to think that you and I had an influence on him, and I, I think we did because you showed him preparation. I helped him with this play-by-play, and then he learned from people like Craig Bowlerjack and David Locke and uh, really proud of that young man. I, I don't know uh, if I've ever been prouder of somebody. But let's get back to Bob Apoon, okay? Bob Apoon, uh, after all this happened, where you, you, you've lost your contract for Utah State Sports, uh, you're working for a radio station that was struggling. I mean, you you got to admit, we were struggling at the time. Then we hit our stride, and we actually were making a lot of money for the radio station. I was doing the morning show. I think you were doing an hour or two in the midday, and plus you were doing sales, you were doing high school sports. And for us to do high school sports with a guy that was the voice of the Fighting Illini and also for the Utah State Athletics, it gave us some credibility as far as uh, that went. So that had to be a tough time but also a proud time because we took, as a team, you and I and Steve, and we made that radio station a real – player in the market right so what what's the the difficult part about doing sales in a small to medium market well it's all about i mean it, it, the difficult part is just identifying prospects and then going to make the initial sales call and then identifying what people need and asking the right questions and putting together the right packages and proposals for them it's going to it's going to work for them in terms of uh you know what they need for their business you know the, the key is you know the key is, you know, what can I do for you? Uh-huh. What, what's going to help you? Uh-huh. Because if it's going to help you, then it's going to help me. So, you know, that 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 was always what I tried to do with sales. Um, but we, we thought, Dave, in 2001, 2002, we thought we were going to get the Utah State contract back. And we did, yeah. And uh, what happened was that uh, there, there was a major investor uh, that was going to be part of the group to invest in it to get it back. And he invested in... I, I can't remember exactly what, but he invested in a, in, a, in a specific LDS movie that lost a lot of money. A lot of money. <laughs> and his accountant informed him he didn't have any money to invest in what he was going to invest in with us, and all of a sudden we lost that investor, and that's when they had to sell the station. Mm-hmm. And that was a, a trying time for all of us. I was very ill at that time, if you remember. Uh, I had uh, some major kidney issues, and uh, I always tell the, the story about uh, the the day before I went into the hospital for about a week, uh, we were we were short-staffed. Uh, you know, we got to say we didn't have a big staff at all. And I was trying to turn over uh, things that I would usually do to other people. And we were getting ready for Thanksgiving period and Christmas. And I was doing commercials right and left. I mean, I was in the production room for literally hours. And being ill, I couldn't do any more. I was that sick 
And I think oh, you, yeah, yeah. I gave you, I gave you the last commercial. Yeah, you gave me the last commercial, and I was, I was done. I rem- you were talking to Steve, and I walked in, and you said something about me that you told me about later that was <laughs> pretty true. Uh, do you remember what you said to Steve at that time? I know, I know, I know. I didn't think he looked very good. I yeah. Exactly what I said. You said that's a dead man walking. Oh, okay. I, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, because Steve told me about it later, and and that was so close because I went downstairs to the parking lot, got in my car, and to this day, I don't know how I got home. I blanked out when my wife got got home to take me to the hospital for my uh, surgery. I said, "Where am I?" I didn't know where I was. I had no clue, but that was a, a trying time. And then knowing that the station was going to be sold and uh, not knowing where we we're going to get our next paycheck from and having such a short staff was uh, uh, just an incredible time. But I think we made the best of it as a team. You and I, uh, Bob Markelis was there for a while and we, we had a revolving store as far as uh, a door, as far as salespeople go. But we also, when it was sold, I think your reputation helped me because we were hired by the new guys. Well, we were hired by the competition. Yeah. Plain and simple. And I mean, that, go ahead. It was um, France well, and Media Group, Cashville and Media. That was Iron. I mean, they, they were the competition. All of a sudden, we're, they're, they're our employers. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that, that, was, that was a different situation because – our one station going up against what that time they think I had four, what, what made it kind of kind of difficult, and then you had the us going over to the competition, and there was some glares in the in the hallways. I didn't feel really welcomed at first. Did you? Well, I'm. I, I, it's probably best. I, I probably. I, I probably. <laughs> I, I'm I'm biting my tongue pretty hard here, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was a difficult situation. I'm sure for everyone concerned, uh, and I'm not going to mention names. I know there was specifically one person that uh, you did not get along with at all, and I wasn't a fan of this man either. And I'm not going to get into that situation, but I I admired you for one thing, and I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a Real compliment here, Bob, because I knew what had happened between you and this gentleman. But you were a consummate pro, and you had a working relationship with him. Uh, you you weren't friends, but you would do things that you were asked to do with this gentleman we're talking about. And that had to be tough. Well, I, ba- I basically said uh, when I had my uh, interview to be hired, I said I, I will not make any disparaging remarks regarding the past uh, to anybody publicly about what what happened, I, I'm just not I'm not going to do it. Uh, if, if I hadn't said that, they probably wouldn't have hired me. Right. Uh, that that was a tough time, but we went on, and uh, you worked for the Cash Valley Media Group, uh, mainly doing sales and and play by play for the Mountain Crests uh, Mustang Sports Team uh, during that time. How long did you work for the Cash Valley Media Group? I think we went from 2002 to 2015. Yeah. That's right, yeah. And then, I, then from 2007 or 8 through 2015, I did the Utah State football pre- and post-game shows. Yeah, and you did a good job on that, too. I think that really gave them the opportunity to have a 
another voice doing uh, some things with Utah State. So about that time, you I, decide. I will say a, a, a real quick story. And this okay. is this is you know Eric Franson was the owner's son was the guy who did this. He came walking up the job. The guy who was doing it left, and Eric came walking up to me one day out of the clear blue sky and said, "You want to take over doing the?" Uh, and, and Eric was the host. Yeah. He said, "You want to take you want to take over doing the pre and post game call and show with me and be our co-host." And I looked at him and I said. Do other people in this building know you're asking me this? <laughs> <laughs> oh. I said, are you sure? <laughs> oh, oh, <laughs> he, yeah, I, I said, I said, well, okay, I just want to be sure before I say anything. Uh, and, you know, that's where egos come into play. I mean, in radio, I, I th- I've met a lot of people that are just normal people. I, I put you right there. You're, you are who you are. You are Bob Apoon. And you're a, a pro at what you do, but you are good people. Then you have people that let their egos take over. And we've run into a few of those. But it's easy to do because people always come in, oh, I love what you did on the radio. So keeping your ego in check, I think, was something you did very well. Well, I've always said, Dave, and, and we've talked with this, that the most normal person in radio ever is not normal. <laughs> and, and, the, and the smallest ego in radio is not a small ego. Right. So, you know, that's that's just the nature of the beast when you're in that kind of a business. And sometimes people butt heads. And, I, you know, like I said, I don't want to get into that. But you got into, uh, later on, you decided that you and your wife were ready to enjoy retirement and be closer to your daughter and, their, and the grandkids. Uh, right. What was part of that decision like? Well, uh, my sister uh, had... Had landed in Columbia, Missouri, back in the early '70s, as part of what she did in Columbia. And people who don't know is, is where the University of Missouri is located. is exactly halfway between Kansas City and St. Louis. So for and then one of our best friends growing up, the best man in her wedding was was a vice provost for extension here for years and years, and he's still here with his family. And so we were very familiar with Columbia, Missouri, for years because of other things. And then it just happened that my daughter and her husband were in Champaign-Urbana where they went to school and decided with what was going on in the state of Illinois, they needed, they needed to leave the state of Illinois before the lights got turned out. And it just happened that around 2010, is that right, Jan? Yeah. 2010, they both got hired at the University of Missouri and moved here to Columbia. And so by 2014, I'm starting to make my uh, time track for retirement. I had about a, about a year track about that time where I knew I was going to retire. And uh, Jan had already retired, was working part-time as a substitute teacher. And so our daughter and her family at that time, over their daughter, husband, uh, and uh, about a seven-year-old and a one-year-old. And I said, if we move to Columbia, are you going to stay here? I said, if you're not moving, we'll move here. I said, if you are moving, I'm not chasing you. And she said, no, Dad, we're pretty well set here. I think we're staying. So, so we decided... Um, as a family, that this was the best place for us to go to, go to, to be with all of our family. And so in the summer of 2015, I retired, and I did one more season of football just to get it out of my system. <laughs> yeah. And we moved, to, we moved here full-time in November of 2015, and we now have my daughter, son-in-law, a 13-year-old, an almost 8-year-old uh, granddaughter, and a 4-year-old grandson, and then my sister's family, and my good friend's family. And then, of course, we've been here for six years between church and other things. We've made a lot of other friends as well. Well, you mentioned the University of Missouri, and I'm very familiar with that area because uh, I worked and owned a radio station about halfway between Columbia 
and St. Louis in a little town called Montgomery City. And I actually worked in uh, Columbia for about eight months at uh, one of their country stations there. But um, we almost ran into each other at the University of Missouri because you were doing Utah State football, and I was with Learfield Communications. We were an affiliate for University of Missouri, and they had Big Media Day. And I I remember going to that and then finding out later that you were there doing the play-by-play. It wasn't a good game, I'll tell you that. Well, this happened. That was the, that was September of 1990, and Utah State had a pretty good football team that year. In fact, that was by far their worst game. Um, they almost won the Big West Conference that year, but it happened the night before was the night they had the, the dedication dinner for Don Perot and made that Perot Field. Right. And of course, Don Perot was a, was a he's like the Bear Bryant of Missouri. That's the easiest way to put it. And uh, and so that was the that was weekend that happened was uh, was September of 1990, yeah. Wow, and I, I just remember when I started working with KGNT, you and I talking, and I told I told you at the time I had been to two Utah State football games, but none here in uh, in Logan, Utah. They were both on the road. I saw them early in the 70s at the Memphis State University, as it was called then, and then I was at that game with the U of M and Utah State, which was a blowout and yeah. it was a beautiful yeah, it day no it wasn't a pretty sight no it wasn't then i remember the next week u of m the tigers go to nebraska and they get beat by about the same score uh, that, <laughs> i said boy utah state woo baby but we did see a lot of people coming in and out of uh, of utah state and you got to see uh, players coming in and out of the University of Illinois and other things that you did. Was there one player that you saw that went on to have some success uh, in the pros that you just said, wow, this guy has got it? Well, Calvillo was certainly at the top of the list uh, for Utah State football, Eddie Johnson for Illinois basketball, and the other guy later on uh, when I was doing the, the postgame show and the pregame show would was, was certainly be Bobby Wagner. Oh, yeah. Um, those are those are all names that jump out, you know, right off the page at me. Just you know, thinking out loud. That, yeah, that I would talk about. Yeah, if you if you saw Bobby Wagner in college, you knew that he was going to have a, a great career. But Utah State at the time was known for for having linebackers going into the pros. They had a couple that went in that played at uh, Box Elder High School and more. Well, Bob, yeah. I I think uh, we've had a fascinating conversation. At least I have. Uh, just really enjoyed. Uh, talking about some of the old times and and all that, and I wanted to just personally thank you for being a friend. And I sound I feel like I'm going to be playing the Golden Girls here for some reason, but we we well, had I just, hope, I, just hope, I just hope I just hope everybody's still awake, Dave. Yeah, <laughs> we had some times where you know, like any job, there's downtime, and we got to get to know each other and share stories. And I remember at a Christmas party where everyone was giving out white elephant gifts. And you got the one that I was giving out. And I remember your eyes just staring down at a can of Spam. <laughs> and you, your eyes were perfect. And then the next year, I got the can of Spam that you had and ate. No, I, I think I think that can of spam became the rotating gift for about the oh, next four years. That that's probably right, and I ate it. I, I, I decided <laughs> I, I decided to make that the station uh, the, the station white elephant. 
You do not like spam, do you? Well, not that one because it was five years old. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bob, we had some great times together, and we also went through some hard times together. And I, I thank you once again uh, for being who you are, the good man that you are. And I wish you the best, uh, I, I'm going to say, in your future endeavors. But I, I'm not going to say that because that has oh. a bad connotation when it comes to me. But I'm going to wish you the best in, <laughs> as, as you enjoy retirement and enjoy your grandkids. That, that's, that's the best thing. been a pleasure, Bob. Thank you, Dave. I've I, been sure to tell me when you want me to join you for Dave Works. Okay. <laughs> we'll do that. Keep me in mind, man. And that's Radio Guy Reflections, a podcast about radio and the people behind the microphone. In future podcasts, we'll look at what makes a successful and sometimes a train wreck of a radio show. As we say in the radio business, if you put that on the radio, people will listen to it. We'll talk with people who started in radio and moved on to success in other fields. Radio Guy Reflections will be back soon with another show about radio and the men and women who produce the radio programs you've loved to listen to. Radio Guy Reflections is a production of Dave's Voice Works.